My name's Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. On today's program, we'll have a roundtable discussion with WFPR's own Frank Falvey and Michael Walker-Jones. Today's subject, organized labor and its impact on our society. So stay tuned for our freewheeling conversation coming up next on Chapters. I'm joined today in studio by my guest, Michael Walker-Jones. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here. And Frank, Frank Falvey. Glad to be here today, Jim. Uh, Certainly no stranger to Franklin Radio or Franklin TV. And uh, also, uh, I am fortunate to co-host Frank's music with you, and I'm appreciative of that. Thank you. You're a... outstanding engineer and <laughs> and we have great fun on our, our music shows we sure do uh, michael walker jones by way of introduction is be embarking on your own radio program yourself uh, i'm excited about it as a matter of fact yeah uh, looking forward to talking about franklin and trying to enhance some of the great work that you guys have been doing and yeah. stuff. so i'm real honored to be here with uh two bright stars in franklin <laughs> as a matter of fact. well thank you for saying that um Frank is certainly a star. He casts a long shadow. <laughs> but I, uh, I'm particularly excited to be able to have this conversation with these two gentlemen because Chapters is a program that honors storytelling and how uh, stories are such an integral part of who we are and how in sharing those stories, we, uh, we learn to be empathetic. We learn about each other's uh, lives. And uh, importantly, we share an oral history uh, that's passed along, which I think unfortunately, is being lost a lot today. Um, and in, in an age that we talk about being more and more connected, there seems to me to be a lot more disconnect than I'm comfortable with. So my anecdote to that is to continue to honor something my dad has uh, valued his whole life, and that's the human story. And an important element of the human story uh, is what we spend a lot of our time doing. In fact, arguably maybe more time than we spend with our families, certainly today, and that is labor, and that is work. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of this uh, country's uh, history, uh, rich, rich history, is uh, told through the blood and sweat and tears of the labor movement, which both of you have had a lot of experience with. So I would love it if you could share with us uh, your experience over the years with labor. So, Frank, could you kick it off? Well, uh Back in the uh, early 60s, I was working uh, for Wonder Bread, uh, and uh, there was a movement to unionize the office. They had moved to Natick, Massachusetts, yep. opened a brand new plant, and were not particularly uh, treating uh, the people in the office very well. And I believe that both on management side and labor side, it is all about how you treat people that, that are working for you. Right. One of the things that I learned from English high school, okay, which I, I've said many times, was a third African-American, a third Catholic, a, a third uh, maybe some WASP and other groups. There was no one majority. Mm-hmm. So in an office, I always learned th- that you needed diversity. Right. Well, there was no diversity in, uh, in this office in Natick, Mass, for uh, one bread hostess cupcake. There was uh, mainly, mainly women, mm-hmm. except in the higher paying positions, there would be men. Sure. At the time, and people are gonna laugh at this, okay, at the time, women were not allowed to wear pants. They, sure. 
they had to wear uh, uh, dresses, skirts, blouses, dresses, whatever. Well, they hired a number of very young women in their early 20s. These women, you know, were in the current age. They mm -hmm. wanted to wear pants, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Come along, okay. Uh, the company wouldn't do it. So one of the things that did happen is all the people kind of got together and said, I want to vote in a union. We want to have a union vote. They went through the procedure, which in those days were a lot easier to get a union into a, a, an office. Mm -hmm. The vote was 100% in favor of having a union. Mm -hmm. The bakery and confectionery union uh, came into existence. I became the first shop steward uh, of the bakery and confectionery union. And one of the first um, uh, what's called uh, grievances yep. was I bought forth the grievance, okay, with this young lady to have pantsuits, to her ability to wear pantsuits. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I, I can't express the words that the supervisor used <laughs> to what she could wear to work, okay, but it was, it was not very complimentary, sure, okay? Sure, So anyways, I filed this grievance, right? Well, in the meantime, there's a wildcat strike that happened at the bakery, <laughs> okay? We went Basically, downstairs, the, the bakers and shippers went on a wildcat strike. They, they went out, stopped work. Um, for some people, you may want to describe what a wildcat strike is. Uh, well, Frank. it's it's you, you have a labor agreement. Uh, the labor agreement says you can't stop working. The, la the union can't stop working. and But they don't pay attention to it. They just <laughs> all go out and stop working, like... The women in the mills in Lawrence, Massachusetts, right, in 1912. Right. Okay, right. called the Bread and Roses strike when Big Bill Haywood Sullivan of the International Workers of the World, commonly called the IWW, yeah. stepped in, and it was a very violent strike. Yeah. Well, so we shut down the bakery. Uh -huh. The Teamsters will not cross the picket line. Sure. They so the, no bakery goods are being delivered. Okay. Well, we meet, right, and we talk about who's filed grievances and one of the grievances. Would you know that I was the only shop steward that had an active grievance <laughs> under consideration, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And the company yeah. hadn't re hadn't told anyone yet, but they agreed that women could wear pantsuits. Sure. So the issue was resolved. The other issue about the wildcat strike cost me three days' pay because at the end of the wildcat strike, all the union stewards were were barred from working for three days and lost three days pay sure sure <laughs> frank i'm curious you, you know you talk about uh th what time period of time was this uh 67 67 uh, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say about 67 68 as you were growing into your professional career what what value did you put on your ability to organize was that was that no, paramount in your mind none None. No value at all. Interesting. The, the only thing is that circumstances happen in life. Yeah. All right. And, you know, the, I just reread a book called uh, Who Moved My Cheese, which is about changes. Things change, right? Mm -hmm. How do you react to change? Mm -hmm. Well, there's hem and haw and sniff and scurry. Okay. 
Hemp recognizes uh, that you have to go with change and adapt to it. Uh, I think it's the other way around. One, one doesn't recognize the change and wants to keep everything absolutely the same, never wants any change. So circumstances come up in life. I never wanted to organize. Mm -hmm. I, I never even dreamed mm -hmm. of organizing. I had a, a sense of the unions sure. because my father, okay, who worked for the Navy, yeah. at, gave me a, a, a grounding. I think that's what I was driving at. Is Where was that in your, in your mind in terms of its value uh, societally and to, to the workforce? Well, I'm, I was... Uh, familiar with the depression. I was familiar with how workers were treated yep. uh, because, uh, uh, you know, of my father and mother, but mainly because of my grandparents. Uh, so I had a value and a value system that valued unions and valued representation. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have particularly any desire to mm -hmm. create a union or mm -hmm. be part of a union. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but uh, I think, right. Michael, as you can uh, yeah. explain, uh, situations to arrive that, uh, that you have to step into. Absolutely. Uh, my experience is a little bit different. Uh, my first encounter with the union uh, personally was in 1971 when I became a teacher in the city of the school uh, uh, in the city of Rochester. Mm -hmm. And it was mandatory for us to be a part of the union. Mm -hmm. In other words, they had a, uh, uh, an agreement with the school district that if you were a teacher, you would become a member of the union. It was a combined union, and what I mean by that, uh, during those days there were two major union national factions, if you will, the National Education Association mm -hmm. and the American Federation of Teachers. Um, and Rochester, actually the whole state of New York, uh, was basically both of those two unions that had come together uh, when I joined in 71. Um, and I had no problem with it. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a contract in place already. We had a shop steward, if you will. We called them building representatives or association representatives. Um, and uh, I was given uh, an orientation by a wonderful lady. Uh, her name <laughs> uh, was uh, Miss Florence Henderson. And she was a teacher right across the hall from me. Was Miss Florence Henderson? Yes, Miss okay. Florence Henderson. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were kidding at first. Yeah, no, that was, uh, you know, Miss <laughs> Henderson. A uh, wonderful uh, African-American yep. woman. She had been teaching and stuff for years and years and years. Yep. Took me under her wing. Uh, even showed me how to use a pair of scissors, which uh -huh. as a male teacher at that particular point, elementary school, by the way, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I wasn't very familiar with and stuff. So, so it was great. Um, now, again, like Frank, though, the union was not necessarily a part of your everyday life. Right. Your everyday life is working. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. union is there to make sure that your everyday life has some predictability mm -hmm. to it, some stability right. to it. Right. Uh, that there is an adequate salary, that there's benefits. Civility, there's too. Things. Yes, and <laughs> civility. Yes. Uh, exactly right. And our working with management, even, uh, was, um, you know, basically a wonderful experience for all of us. Now, on occasion, did things happen that, you know, there was some disagreement? Uh, one of the things that I immediately discovered was that being in a union actually, uh, and I think the word you, you used was correct, civility. If there was a problem, we were able to resolve those problems because the terms of how to address conflict was laid out in the, uh, the collective bargaining agreement. 
so that in and of itself and stuff made life actually wonderful because you didn't have things that could mount to uh, this personal ill feeling or something that had gone on so long to where it became uh, anger uh, rather than uh, compromise and looking at trying to problem solve. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that was my first experience with the union and my life uh, from there uh, went on to a whole lot of other um, positions in the union and ultimately led to my becoming a staff member right. uh, with uh, one of the nationals, uh, the National Education Association, and then ultimately a number of different states. Down, at, down in Arkansas at one point? Uh, Arkansas, yeah. uh, Kentucky, yeah. uh, New York, uh, and ultimately Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. This is where I landed uh, uh, some 25, 30, almost 30 years ago now. Uh, and so I finished my career here. Uh, as a staff person and then went on to a management uh, position in Louisiana uh, for about four years, and then I decided to retire. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I want to remind everybody, we're speaking with Frank Falvey and Michael Walker-Jones. This is Chapters Radio. My name is Jim Derrick. You can find me at my podcast, dot chaptersradio.com. We're having a great conversation today about labor, and we're honoring the role that labor plays in our lives. It's part of our stories. Uh, How often have you walked into a conversation getting to know somebody and you haven't said, what do you do? That is a that is an enormous part of the conversation normally, and um, because after I haven't all, heard that for years. Right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. well, a couple of times I heard, "Why are you here?" Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you do tends to be a part of the conversation because after all, what we do uh, vocationally and for a living tends to make up an enormous part of our lives. We're talking about the labor movement um, through the eyes, through the unique lens of both of these gentlemen who have spent a significant period of their lives uh, involved with studying the labor movement uh, and and being a part of the labor labor movement uh, with their own roles. Um, I'm curious as to... As Jim, to, let me interrupt you. Yeah, please do. One, You're one not supposed second. to do that, but go ahead. No, I'm not kidding you, Fred. <laughs> Bringing something locally to Franklin, Massachusetts. Sure. Okay. The fellow that I, I love, that Bruce Hewitt Phillips, yeah. used to tell about the 30s, the past, uh, labor movies, Jim Hill, okay? Yeah. Uh, I bought him to Franklin, Massachusetts. Ah. Great to the story. high school. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I made arrangements with Dorothy Swanbeck, okay, for this fella, okay, to speak to several classes, right? Yeah. Well, Ronald Reagan is president. It is the air traffic controllers are on strike, okay? He comes into this history classes, okay, yeah. talks for about however a period is long. And what does he talk about? Mike, Mike knows. He talks about scabbing. 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 Yeah. Now, what is a scab? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh. A scab is a person that t- crosses the union line, right. okay, during a legitimate, honest-to-goodness strike, okay? Sure. And fills that job. Sure, and, and and any of the people that might be are my contemporaries or younger remember the scabs at uh, the old Sullivan Stadium when the Patriots were the NFL was on strike and uh, they had players that were crossing the lines and there was yes. some pretty uh, you know we might have thought that was a little funny. Uh, it's not funny. Um, uh, the history of of that uh, uh, is not something that people took lightly back uh, when people would cross lines. You, you know, but that brings up a very interesting kind of uh, 
story around unions and actually some of the what I would call not so good history of unions. Uh, unions are not perfect mm-hmm. uh, the same way as, you know, companies are not perfect. Right. The people who run the companies, you know, none of us are perfect. Um, and at the same time, we're going to, on to perfection as Methodists, though. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, be, being a good Catholic, I will admit that you guys have a really wonderful time with that and stuff, and we enjoy watching it. Uh, but uh, but from but from my perspective, again, you know, especially as a Catholic, one of the things too, we have to admit our guilt, uh, and we have to admit when when it is and stuff that we've done wrong. Okay. Uh, and there are some periods of time, too, when unions have had a very sordid history. Let me be specific. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, let's talk about some of the incidents of scabbing. Companies would go out in the community and try to find people to go in across the union lines to take these jobs of people who were on strike. And typically, especially in areas where you could bring this kind of division, they would go out and look for people of color to come in and take jobs of people uh, who were not of color. They did that purposefully because it would add two things. One, the people of color typically were ones who were unemployed or who really needed a job. Mm -hmm. So they were motivated to cross those lines. The people who were on the lines would see these people as ones who were coming in to take our jobs, uh, and therefore uh, they are the scum of the earth, therefore the name Scab. Right. Okay. And after the conflict had been resolved and the people had been removed, sometimes the companies would keep some of these people who had been scabs in order to put in front of the folks who were the union members this symbol that, you know what, at any point in time, if you guys do this again, we will bring these people back in. You are well, infinitely replaceable. You were infinitely replaceable, yeah. but then this visual image of someone of wow. color who's sitting there working beside you. Wow. Now, what kind of relationship is that going to help to build between those two factions of folks and stuff who were sitting there looking at Thank you for, oh boy, that is such a powerful, powerful uh, 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 symbol that you just gave me. I, I was just thinking about the role that unions have had in weaving the social fabric and change over time. Um, and I was thinking about race relations. I'm obviously thinking about women's uh, rights in the workforce. Um, I, I, I'm just, I know it's a, it's an, a long, long topic. We could go on for hours and hours about it, but I'm curious as to, that's a perfect example. I'm curious about how unions have either benefited uh, us in terms of weaving, a, a helping the cause mm-hmm. or, or detracted from it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's two sides. Frank. Let me bring this locally. The Franklin police, a few years ago, their union negotiated a contract with the town of Franklin, okay, that now someone hired after July 1st a few years ago, right, not only makes less money, Mm -hmm. but has less benefits, okay, than someone hired before. Mm -hmm. Now, you're a policeman, right? Your partner was hired before you. He makes more money and has better benefits than you do. Mm-hmm. Now, Michael, I, I know we've talked about this before, but see, that raises the hair on the back of my head, right. okay? And I don't right. have much there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the unions have made a huge mistake. 
in favoring trying to get a contract passed and in favoring the union employees against the young. To me, that's age discrimination. What's your answer, Michael? My answer is that, uh, again, as a union representative, two-tiered contracts are anathema. They are absolutely the worst. And what I mean by two-tiered contracts is just what you described. You have one tier where those people who were legacy, let's say I was here when we negotiated this, and they're basically looking out for themselves. And then you have those who will say, okay, for the betterment of the ability of the union to stay and for us not to have to go on strike, you make concessions to management. Mm -hmm. And that concession is to basically stop the contract as it exists now and then go on to something new with lesser, fewer benefits, uh, even fewer considerations for the people who will come before us. The theory is that we don't know who those people are and therefore let's go ahead and sign the contract now. But they do show up. You're absolutely right, Frank. They start to work side by side. And that will never dissipate until all of those people who were in that legacy contract retire or leave. But every renewal of the contract, they do the same thing again and again and again and again. again. Because that then sets up a pattern with management. Well, if you were making concessions then, well, it's only a two-tier contract. Let's make it a three-tier contract, a four-tier contract. So every single subsequent uh, entry of new folks brings fewer and fewer benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think that's the pitch. I agree with you. Frank. And, and so this is horrible. setting up. This is setting up a natural tension, a yes. tension in the workforce by people that are uh, both represented by union and not uh, by uh, uh, employers and towns, municipalities, societally. There are these tensions that exist right. as a result. Right. Right. Absolutely. Of these negotiations. And they're built in. They're built into not only the contract, but the entire relationship between the union and management. And then you've got everyone uh, sort of fighting one another inside silently for the most part. Yeah. Because most of the time it's internal to the union when these kinds of issues come up and you don't want to make them public. Okay. But I will be here as a retired union representative telling you and stuff that those tensions get to be uh, beyond anger. It gets to a point where there is uh, real animus between Mm. those who are younger and those who were there before uh, and a lack of trust. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, where is this coming from? Yeah. Uh, and then the, then the ultimate question is, where is it going? Right. The labor movement itself, I think, has been its own worst enemy in many instances because we have forgotten that ultimately it's all of us together. Right. Right, Frank? Right. Because if we don't stand together, if we keep separating and segmenting ourselves. Solidarity forever. You know, that solidarity is gone. And then, therefore, management then can manipulate the contract and manipulate all of the things around the people, including your working environment. And then, ultimately, manipulate those working relationships, the interpersonal relationships that sort of make the union what it is. The state legislature just recently passed what's called a grand bargain. I think it was a grand give it to the... You can't say that on radio, Frank. Give it to the worker. One of the one of the terrible things that they agreed on, right? People working in retail stores on Sunday yeah. were paid time and a half. Mm-hmm. All right, 
they're working on Sundays. They're working, you know, why should they be paid time and a half, okay? They agreed to do away with it. Mm. Stop and shop, my understanding is that they will still get time and a half for Sunday, but when that contract expires, and I gather this might be by law, Michael, they'll never get time and a half again, ever. It, 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 that's not a bargain. Yeah. That's not a, a, something we should give up. Yeah. If I sound angry, I am. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's taking something yeah. so basic yeah. right. to making a living. They're giving a $15 wage over, I don't know, five, six years. By the time that they have people ever get to the $15, right, mm-hmm. they'll be back where they started when they passed the law. The $15 will be worth the same money. If, if I'm a young man, Frank, or a young woman in today's, in today, and I'm at Franklin High School, and I approach either one of you and I say, you know what? You want to go to vocational tech. Okay. <laughs> I'm at vocational tech. But I, I'm interested in history. I'm interested in U.S. history. And I say to each of you, I say, you know what? I'm really interested in studying history, but I'm not interested in labor. I'm not as interested in the labor movement. What's mm-hmm. wrong with that statement? Well, you're ignoring possibly one-third of all economics. Okay. Uh, that's what's wrong with that statement. And uh, I must admit that as a high school social studies teacher, economics was part of my uh, repertoire, if you will. And when you're teaching economics, if you only teach about how the system works, uh, that's one third of it. In other words, a capitalist system, a communist system, a mixed system, a socialist system. The other part that you have to start to look at is labor. Labor is is absolutely the foundation of how things get done in any industry. Someone has got to ultimately do the work, whether right. it's a programmer who's putting together the computer system for the robotics and the and the robots do the you know do the actual sort of assembly, if you will. Yep. There's still a human being at the beginning of that process, and that person is working and earning a particular salary. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, when you look at the other third, which is the, uh, the the idea that there are nations and that there are businesses that require someone to invest in them, who are they investing in? Again, they're investing in not just the land and the commodity, but they're investing in people. So any student who came to me and said, you know what, I'm not interested in labor, uh, you know, I, I can understand a student who tells me they're not interested in unions. And again, that's that's a huge, huge mistake. Uh, but to not be interested in labor. OK, so don't forget, labor is not necessarily synonymous with unions. Right. Labor is a whole part of the economic system. Right. Right. And and labor reflects. And how we treat our labor and how we how we value what people do and. The systems and mores that that exist in the in the workplace is a reflection of what's going on in our society and vice versa. Yes. Right. So you mentioned earlier, uh, we set up a a terrible tension between African-American workers and 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 Caucasian workers in the workforce. Not just African-Americans. You know, when I say people of color, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going back, uh, uh, go back to, for example, the building of the Intercontinental uh, uh, Railroad. Yep. Okay. Yep. We're talking about Chinese. Yep. 
We're talking about people who, again, don't look like the majority who were used as forced labor. Uh, we're talking about uh, Irish. Italian. Okay. Yeah. Italian. Yeah. Who came in and, again, were used as cannon fodder, if you will, to try to keep everyone else in line. What a great point. And Frank was talking earlier about, you know, the notion of uh, not being able to wear uh, anything but a skirt or, or a dress that conformed to certain requirements of the workplace. I mean, all of these things are mirrors of what's going on societally and vice versa. And yes. uh, I think, you know, I'm kind of begging the obvious that, that you're missing a, a whole swath of history um, that that if you ignore it, um, you know, it, when I was growing up, Michael, my, my, the, the mantra around my house, and I, I don't know where this came from. I think it was the, the perception was that teachers in particular had this sweetheart deal, you know, and, and, and it's, it becomes part of the, almost to the language, yeah. you know, yeah. ah, the stupid unions, the stupid unions. And I'll never forget one of my first jobs was working for a trade show company. Uh, and I was m trying to move equipment around a trade show floor at one of the convention centers. And I had to stop right. at a yellow line because a union representative had to carry a box from one side of the hall to the other. Yes. Because, you know, and then I understood, I looked at the labor rates and everything else. So some of these things, you know, but they just became very well entrenched to be anti-union. Um, is that still pervasive today? Oh, absolutely. And would you say more so than ever? Uh, I would say more so in places. Uh, well, let me be just real, uh, you know, just real clear. Primarily in the South and in the Southeast, uh, you will find this anti-union attitude is really what's driving. Uh, a lot of not only the sentiment toward, uh, oh, how should I say, conservatism, if you will. Yes. Because they believe, uh, those who are anti-union, believe that I can do much better without paying someone to tell me what to do. Uh, somebody out of New York or out of Ohio, wherever the union headquarters may be, and I know best. I am not per personally... I see nothing wrong with having a company union. There is nothing wrong with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of the best unions in the world are company unions. For example, if you look at Mercedes, Mercedes actually has a company union. However, when Mercedes brought their company here, they wanted to set up a company union inside of their plants. The politicians and the corporate leaders in those states said, no, you don't even want that. Mm -hmm. Mercedes agreed, okay, you guys know your, you know your own local norms and your own local mores. And so they said, okay, no unions at all. I would tend to uh, say then that these are folks who are actually not really positive toward labor. Now, again, the difference between labor and union here right. is the idea that you want to be able to manipulate your people manipulate those individuals to the point where you can do basically anything you want to. That's why you don't even want a company union. Someone in, you know, you have people organized inside, which to me then draws either one of two things. Uh, you, you either conclude that they want chaos or they want to have uh, basically servitude. And I would tend to believe that it's more of the latter, that they really want servitude. Yeah. They really want you to come to work, do what we tell you to do. Don't question what we do. And we'll be the ones who make the profit. And maybe we'll give you some of it. Maybe. Okay. 
Jim, coming back to Franklin, Massachusetts, right? And you mentioned teachers. Michael was a teacher. One of the things I think is in your mind is, man, he has a great pension. Right. <laughs> he, you know, they they gave the boat away when they, they gave him the pension, That's, right? That was the all the teachers in Massachusetts, sure. right? That are going to retire with fantastic pensions. And they didn't even have to work summers. Yeah. Do you know what? Do you know what the problem is for Franklin, Massachusetts? The pension liability is unfunded. What mm -hmm. does that mean? Mm -hmm. Franklin has never put enough money away, mm -hmm. okay, to pay for his pension in the future. What does that mean? Franklin will never have enough money to pay for teachers' pensions in the future because the taxes would go up so much, you can't raise the taxes because it's 2.5%. Right. So the, the unanswered question which is just hanging over everyone that no one will talk about, okay? The federal government bailed out the private industry. In yeah. other words, my pension is now being paid by the federal government because the company didn't have enough money to pay my pension, sure. okay? Federal government stepped in. I'm getting my money now from the federal, federal government. The states don't have that. The federal government in local cities and towns are not going to be bailed out by the federal government. So, Michael, what are going to happen to teachers' pensions in Franklin, Massachusetts? Well, not only do the uh, is the uh, pension itself not funded, but add one other piece to that for teachers in Massachusetts. They don't get Social Security either. Right. Massachusetts is one of the as teachers. As teachers, they could build up Social Security if they have another summer job or something like that. No, they can build it up, right? But they won't get it because Can't they don't dip. have enough quarters. In. Because they'll never have enough quarters. And on top of that, if you then did have enough quarters, let's say you were able to work a job during the summer. First off, let me dispel one thing, Jim. Uh, uh, because, you know, this is one of the things that I had to fight years and years and years and years and years and for years. People think that, oh, teachers got it great. You got the summers off. Yeah. You got uh, uh, vacations at Christmas. Sure. You got winter break. You, know, you get out okay. at 2.30. You get out. Yeah. All right. All of that wonderful stuff. Okay. If a teacher contract says that you work 185 days, you get paid for 185 days. Mm-hmm. You don't get paid for Christmas break. That's not part of the 185 days. You don't get paid for the winter break. That's not part of the 185 days. When summer comes, you don't get paid during the summer. Mm -hmm. That's not part of the 185 days. So add to that that your pension now is at the mercy of the state, and you don't get Social Security, if you don't save, and now you can't have a 403B, you can put money into a 403B, which is the equivalent of a 401K, you can do that as a teacher. But let's say, for example, you then work during the summer, you earned some Social Security credits, uh, and those credits amount to, let's say, uh, what could be the equivalent of $500 a year. Okay, You're not going to get that because if you take it, your state pension is going to be offset by that $500. Right. Okay. And I said $500 a year. I meant $500 a month. Right. So right. your pension then is going to be offset by the Social Security that you get. Mm -hmm. So no matter what you do as a teacher, at the end of the day, your pension 
is at the mercy of the state, does not have any kind of addition to it with regard to Social Security. Now, my pension, which is out of the private sector, okay, I get my pension and I get my Social Security. I built up enough over the quarters to where I get the max in terms of Social Security. I get the max in terms of my, my pension. I'm okay. Teachers don't have it that nice. Right, right. And this, this is really illustrating the point I was trying to make. The point I was trying to make is that we get these, just like with everything else in life, we get these deep-rooted senses that maybe we grow up with them like I did, that unions were somehow bad, that, that teachers were, in my case it was teachers' unions, uh, were causing teachers to be overpaid. Um, we, and we don't even know where we come up with these uh, senses over time. My point is this. Behind every story, there's a story. Yes. And we need to, we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to the people we value uh, in society to not not just go around with these deep-seated, rooted sort of myths that we build up in our minds without doing the research, without having these conversations. Because I guarantee you that a teacher is not overpaid. No. Of, you can call a teacher a lot of things. Overpaid isn't one of them. Correct. Everything that I said before, a teacher gets out at 2.30. I know too many teachers that work deep into the night correcting papers. I've gotten calls from teachers in the Franklin school system when my kids were in elementary schools on summer vacations uh, when they were supposedly lying on a beach somewhere <laughs> to bring me up to speed on something that had been going on with my son in a uh, class uh, during the year that they were catching up on. These are hardworking individuals. And I would argue the same is true with many, many professions that are represented by unions. We Absolutely. just need to take the time to understand, to deconstruct the, the contract, do what you guys are doing here, and that's have intelligent conversations with facts in front of us. Until we do that, we really don't have anything to talk about. Jim, you know, let me just add one little subtle piece to this with regard to a teacher and their time. If you're a brand-new teacher... You typically spend, for every hour that you're in the classroom, a minimum of three hours preparing. And if you're a teacher of, let's say, 20 years or more, you're still spending anywhere between an hour to an hour and a half for every hour that you're in the classroom. Now, you do the math, okay? And people think, well, yeah, your teacher only works from uh, 8 o'clock in the morning until 2.30 in the afternoon. Look at that. Isn't that wonderful? No, because they're typically there before then. Many teachers are there after uh, 2.30. Uh, many of them work in terms of evenings, uh, not just grading papers. It's not just about grading papers. You also have to stay fresh in your field. Of course. If you're an elementary school teacher you in teaching math, okay, uh, the techniques change. So none of the sort of ideas or the perspectives that people have uh, are just as they seem. It's so true, Michael. And we're asking teachers, police officers, firefighters, and many, many other professions to do more with less these days. Right. I will give any, you know, we all hear these anecdotes. They're true. I've seen it with my own two eyes. Teachers that bring their own supplies into school, okay? Firefighters that are now asking, I'm sorry, uh, police officers that are now being uh, trained basically to be, to deliver medicine in the form of Narcan right. and to do other social service types of things as we've eroded the social service component of our 
um, of our towns and cities uh, and taking positions away in shrinking budgets. Uh, so we're asking people to do more and more with less and less. And that's not just in the public sector. That's true in the private sector as well. So true. Uh, because when a company wants to maximize its profits, what's the first place they look? The absolute benefits. first place is in benefits, and then the next place they look is in, okay, can we cut down our workforce? By pot, using part-time workers. Part-time workers, robotics. Uh, matter of fact, the largest uh, incursion into the reduction of the labor force yep. has actually been through robotics. Uh, I happen to be fortunate to work in Scott County, Kentucky, which is where the Toyota plant sure. uh, is located. And I was there prior to Toyota coming and when they were clearing the land for that massive plant that's there. And one of the things that uh, Toyota required of Kentucky, which they gave them, was research and development in robotics. The University of Kentucky has now one of the largest research uh, and development centers for robotics in the country, primarily sponsored and promoted by Toyota. And why did they want robotics? Because they knew that when they came in, they were going to try to, in the American plant, start to automate as fast as they possibly could. They did. So they came in, they must have hired maybe eight, 9,000 people to start. That number is still, today, about eight or 9,000 people. Mm -hmm. And why haven't they increased their workforce? Because they've increased their ability to use robotics. Interesting. Let me correct you, Michael, though. The greatest reduction in American workforce is because of a trade agreement called NAFTA, where, where we have allowed particularly China and other countries to take particularly manufacturing and uh, lower uh, cost uh, paying uh, to create a, a, an item. Well, you know, that would be a great debate, Frank, uh, because I don't think NAFTA actually is the cause of the problem. I think NAFTA has been the sort of visualization of the problem, if you will. Mm -hmm. But it's because we're moving more globally. Yeah. Labor is no longer restricted to the borders of the individual country. Mm -hmm. Labor now is a worldwide phenomenon. And so if a Chinese person is making $2 a day uh, to build washing machines, okay, uh, and we're paying $20 an hour, uh, to build those same washing machines, yep. okay, where's the company going to go? Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, one of the things that concerns me for the future is the impact of um, uh, the workforce and the demands on people's time, the demands on, as I said, doing more with less, and as you so rightly pointed out, it is not, by a long shot, just the public sector. It's also the private sector. I'm married to a computer consultant. Uh, uh, she works on a large computer platform installing it at, at you know, major large corporations around the world. Um, I am absolutely flabbergasted. Uh, she's been doing this now for 30 years, and I've, I've been watching her time erode. The amount of free mm -hmm. time she has, the amount of on time she has is soaring. You know, she's expected to be literally on call 24 seven. Um, you know, and it's not just cliche. I, I see this accelerating at a rate with technology that is frankly has me concerned for how people are going to manage their that work life balance moving forward. And f what I'm hearing from you both is that understanding labor and 
which is different than unions mm-hmm. and organizing. Mm-hmm. And the history of both of, of these um, elements of our of our society is really important to inform us not only where we've been, but maybe where we're going to go and how we're going to get there. Absolutely. Am I wrong? Let let me say this. Uh, Michael and I grew up when Sunday was a day of rest. Yes. And and, and a day of rest is mentioned in the Bible. A day of rest, physicians and doctors will tell you you need both for physical reasons and you need for spiritual and mental reasons. I cannot understand why... They extended on Sunday. The liquor stores now can open at 10 in the morning. That's got to be costing liquor stores money. The problem is we no longer either individually or as a society recognize how important rest is. And I'm a strong believer that if you don't get physical, mental uh, rest. Spiritual uh, rest. Spiritual rest. Rest in, in in clearing your ability to clear your mind, uh, to go fishing like your grandfather did. That's right. Um, what do you think, Michael? Well, I think that, you know, the evolution of what you're talking about, Frank, is we no longer have what I would call set days of rest. Uh, unfortunately, the country itself has become 24-7. And here is where I think unions, again, are very important because I agree with you. We all need rest. We need spiritual as well as mental as well as physical rest. And heretofore, the only time that we've dealt with that as a country was when unions started demanding the concept of weekends. Okay. Um. And now we've evolved to the point where you can't distinguish weekends anymore. So true. People are working seven days a week, 24 hours a day in some industries. Um, and the company now is requ- is required to give them rest in some instances by law. But then we asked them to work overtime. So the company is trying to incentivize folks to move away from that. Uh, we've gotten into part-time work, which is now asking an individual to put together a job working four or five part-time jobs. Uh, we've moved away from Sundays as a sort of national day of rest. A sacred day of rest uh, in some respects, uh, yeah. Because, you know, you will take off what you need if you need to be off on Sunday. Right. If you're a seven-day Adventist and stuff, on Saturday or uh, or Friday evening if you're Jewish or, uh, you know, whatever your religion uh, or spiritual day of rest may happen to be. And so now, Frank, what we're into is... The visualization of a 724 society, and even in Franklin, I mean, look at what happens. You cannot distinguish Sunday in Franklin from Tuesday in Franklin, all right? They, they all look about the same, except City Hall is closed, okay? Uh, but with rare exec- exep- exceptions, everything else is open. Everything else is yeah. open. Exactly. Including liquor stores. Uh, liquor stores. Sure. The post office is still closed. Yeah. Uh, but even they, during certain times of the year, are open, all right, like during the holidays. I can get an Amazon package to live my house on Sunday. So who's there speaking for the worker, Frank, 
Who's there speaking for the worker and saying, okay, here is what a reasonable period of work looks like. Here's what a reasonable period of rest looks like. Okay. And in many industries, no one's there. It's only those who own the company or who manage the company. They're the ones who are making the decision. The workers have very little voice in that. And that's the thing that scares me. When you look at Franklin, for example, uh, I mean, the idea of taking away Sunday as a mandatory day of time and a half doesn't necessarily eliminate the idea of time and a half. So those, so fortunately, if there were a union, one would say, okay, if I work X number of days in a row on Y day, I get time and a half. Right. That may fall on Sunday. It could fall on Tuesday. So I don't have any problem with the sort of, uh, you know, doing away with a mandatory day. But who's there speaking up for the worker saying, oh, okay, you can do away with Sunday as a mandatory day. But guess what? When these workers work X, Y, Z hours, okay, they are entitled to time and a half. Who's speaking for those workers? Right. And ultimately, who's, you know, who does this ultimately, where does this ultimately rear its ugly head? Families, right? An erosion of health, uh, an, an erosion of the family unit in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, as I'm sitting here right now, is there a coincidence that we're in the middle of our nation's number one health epidemic, which is the addiction, uh, in particular opioid epidemic? I don't know. Um, while this while this uh, it becomes more and more prevalent, this being the erosion of, of um, uh, things that used to be sacred, which very simply on Sunday— Things weren't open. Yeah. On Sunday, you could walk downtown because guess what? There was plenty of parking. Yeah. You didn't have to look three times before you crossed the street because people were at home. Yeah. Um, today, I go to a soccer field, a baseball field. I coach baseball until very recently down in Rhode Island. Parents would have laptops while their kids are playing games with headphones in. And I yeah. remember an, an older gentleman saying to me, look at these people. What's wrong with them? And I'd say, they're required to be on their lap. Can't they just tell their boss that it's the ball game? No. They can't. So I think it has a very real impact on, uh, and this is frankly what what we started talking about, is the impact of what's going on from a labor standpoint on our society and on our families and on us individually. And how is that going to um, express itself as we we, uh, age? So in any event, we are now at the end of our program. I want to thank you both for for your time. I'm very excited for, for Michael Michael Walker Jones <laughs> new program which will be announced shortly I'm sure. Yeah, I hope so. And uh, I really look forward to uh, hopefully doing these roundtable shows again. So, for Frank Falvey and Michael Walker Jones, my name's Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening to Chapters and we'll see you next week. <laughs>